This Sunday, the big interview returns from Irishman Abroad with the former diplomat and scholar, Dr. Jennifer Cassidy. Don't miss this conversation about the age of digital democracy, the normalization of extremism and the role of social media in changing how we discuss the world with each other. But now it's time for this. My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. I'm joined as always by Marion McKeown, but this time you're back in Ireland and I'm out here on the road in London experiencing the full British grieving process. And now that we have all had a chance, Marion, to watch back the ways in which the US media interrupted their programming to deliver the news of the Queen's passing, has it completely disappeared off the news cycle over there? Or is there the same level of intrigue that we discussed last week? Well, you know, it's very interesting, Jarla, because although I am limping around Dublin at the moment, I uh, have been in touch with a lot of my journalist friends in LA and just chatting about it. And of course, monitoring the LA or the, the US coverage in general and in New York and in Washington as well. Now, what I'm finding really interesting is, okay, the fascination the American fascination, which we discussed in great detail with all things royal and Diana and the crown and the whole thing. And oh my God, there's Camilla. She's going to be queen now. Good God, et cetera, et cetera, is ongoing. But there's been, it's very interesting. There, there have been, a, how would you describe it? several academics, a flatter of academics, a flock of academics, or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> something of academics. A uh, library of academics. I don't know. What, do you, what would you say? <laughs> conference hall of academics. But, uh, well, they're not really, because it's about half a dozen of them who have come out now in the last week or so and basically said, not to put too fine a point on it, good riddance. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, really? the first... The first uproar was a, a linguistics professor in Carnegie Mellon University, very prestigious university, Uju Anya. Now, to put it in context, her mother is Jamaican, her father's from Nigeria, and she basically said that the Queen sat on a throne of blood and that she claimed that, of course, you know, the crown, there's little denying that the, the jewels, and, I, you know, I was looking at the crown sitting on top of the coffin yesterday because like every day I've been watching some of this and uh, just look at the size, the diamonds and the, you know, the, the, the wealth of them. And she made the point that these are all blood diamonds. You know, all these diamonds mm. that you see, this was before responsible mining and God knows that hasn't, you know, that's, that's still a, a minority of, of diamond mining and that these are all blood diamonds. And she also claimed that the queen was directly responsible for the brutal Nigerian civil war of 1967. Now, I would take issue with that because as we know, the queen is a figurehead 
Um, she's she is a monarch, but the British government did support. I don't think most people would remember in in 1967 there was a brutal war um, in Nigeria because the the Igbo people wanted a separate uh, country and they wanted it was to be known as Biafra. And uh, the Nigerian government was having none of it, partly because the region had a lot of wealth and mineral wealth and diamond wealth. And they and the, the civil war that followed was savage and the British government supported the Nigerian government and they supplied them with a lot of weapons. About two million people died, I believe, in that two-year period. Um, many from starvation. Now, I still remember um, people talking about the Biafra famine and how Really, be you know, for a long time, when you heard the word Biafra, it was synonymous with famine on an unprecedented scale, almost in in the modern world. And it was the famine was caused by this war, and and uh, it was appalling. And and still, if you know, the, the images and the accounts of it are still available, and they're so harrowing. So this this professor is is of, as I said, part Nigerian, part Jamaican descent, and she has a legitimate axe to grind with the royal family and the monarchy. So, um, but but of course there was outward, how dare she, how very dare she say this about the Queen and et cetera, et cetera. And there was another professor who wrote for um, New York magazine, uh, Tunaka Love, um, who basically said, look, the colonizer, that colonizer has been sucking up the earth's resources for nine to six years. Now, again, I think in a way, the royal family can't have it both ways because if you're a figurehead, for all that's good, you know, the unity, family, etc., stoicism, devotion to duty. You also have to take the other side of this, is which that you did preside over, well, not 96 years, because she was only born 96 years ago, but she certainly presided over a good, what, 70 or thereabouts, 71 years of, of you know, the, the, the consequences of colonialism. And there was never an apology. I know when, when uh, William and Kate, the world is really changing, but that you may remember when they went to Jamaica and on their Caribbean tour, um, it mm. was a deep disaster. Like, notwithstanding the fact that the British media tried to cover it all up, but basically nobody watched them in Belize or in Jamaica or anywhere else for that matter. It was basically whichever feck off and go home, you know, was was the attitude. And I think that they they did sort of half mutter some kind of an apology in Jamaica for things that had been done. But when you think of the savagery that was committed um, in the British colonies, Barbados in particular, uh, because, you know, sugar plantations, things like that, you cannot expect, I mean, my God, an apology is so long overdue for that. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that um, and I think it, it was uh, this chap loved who said that, you know, more or less what I'm saying, you can't be an oppressor and not expect the people you've oppressed to, to you basically you can't expect them to mourn your death if what they associate you with is decades of suffering and oppression. I mean, wh why would they mourn your death? But um, and then the, in the New York Times there was another professor, history professor at Harvard, um, Maya Jasanoff, who basically and I thought her piece made a lot of sense when I read it. She said, you know, basically the reign is being romanticized because the Queen is a symbol of colonialism. You know, she's a symbol of the British Empire, which went where they were not wanted, let's face it, and, and did things that they should not have done. And I think it is fair enough to question that. But people are going, well, now is not the time. And yes, you know, I think you can have respect for the individual, for a woman who, as an individual mother and grandmother, um, and, and was born into a family where she was required to do a job that required 
and she showed, I mean, we've seen the new king in three days, three tantrums. She showed enormous stoicism uh, over, uh, you know, what, what, 70 years on the throne and enormous um, devotion to duty, whether or not you agree with what that duty stood for. But I think it's fine for people, Eugene Scott and the Washington Post also um, said, well, you know, if we can't talk about colonialism now and its consequences, when are we allowed to talk about it? In a week, in a month, in a year? Whatever and uh, and also Amana Gandhi, another um, uh, who said that like you know, not everybody in the world is mourning the the death of the a symbol of what they see as suffering and oppression, and I think that's absolutely fair enough. But as mm. I say, so Jed, so Jedward kind of paved the way for the first kind of backlash against uh, everything that's taken place. I don't know if you <laughs> saw you the Jedward call to have the six <laughs> counties back. But it, it is it is a strange time over here, and particularly yeah. for entertainers and people in comedy. Uh, I'm seeing a, you know certain shows being pulled, uh, and I was reminded that you know comedy did not air on the BBC for a year the last time the monarch passed. Uh, but this kind of shutting down of dialogue, yeah, it, yeah it can't I wonder it can't have it. But also, then there is a part of me that. Even in my own feed, like I'm not, I, I don't think now is the time myself, but I do think that there's, these are nuanced discussions that are taking place. It's not just cheap jokes that are being made. The The point in the New York Times was simply, yeah, more in the Queen, but not the Empire. Um, exactly. What is the general, in your, from what you can tell, the response in America to those uh, people? Because... Certainly over here, those are just Daily Mail fodder. 100% will, will get clicks. Look at this crazy American um, um, so-called academic. Look what they're saying now. Well, you know, it's interesting because I saw a lot of the, the Daily Mail response and they're saying spirit commentary, etc. It's it's actually, the, the, you know, some of these pieces are well-reached. And as I say, I would have respect for any family that's grieving. But I do think that, as I said, you know, there are two sides to this. In fact, you touched on it last week, Charles, when you said about the cost of this is all being borne by taxpayers. Taxpayer. Now, yeah. I think that that's actually okay. She gave them 17 years. You know, I don't know what it's going to cost, but dear me, it's dragging on. You know, like really and truly. And I think mm. this is it's the other It's only thing. beginning as well. It's only I beginning. Think. This is the other thing a, a, a friend by New York, a New York journalist said, like, how long more is this going to go on for, for God's sake? You know, really, that, that the, you know, you do have periods of, you know, and we've seen it with American, uh, like John Lewis had a, uh, but then again, what John Lewis, what he accomplished, he did lie in state in the rotunda after his death. Um, and, uh, you know, but he, I think that he was an icon of civil rights. He was a force for good. He was a force for liberation rather than oppression and a symbol of that liberation. And he was also, there wasn't a person in politics, or maybe there were some, but I think he was such a good man. Everybody in Washington, D.C. that I knew absolutely loved John Lewis and they respected his legacy and they respected his dignity and his decency and his enormous courage. Now, I think the Queen, certainly in her life, showed dignity and decency and courage at times. You know, certainly it wasn't easy at her age, 25, to become Queen. But there was a lot that, that was wrong. She was a symbol, as we've said, of a lot that was wrong, specifically the British Empire. And uh, so 
I, I really think it's fine at any time to ask these questions. I don't think to do it in a disrespectful way. I think, you know, making shocking jokes for clickbait is, is a little, you know, silly and a little disrespectful. But I think for, for people to ask reasoned questions is fine. And But, for, but Marin, for some people, it's going to be too soon for an awful long time. This is the whole, you know, subjectivity of uh, grief and what a person means to someone. Yeah. There will be those that will say, you know, you, you may never mock her. And that there will be those that will say, yeah, look, we had a month. And now yeah. let's let's talk about this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel that from all angles that the the varying different levels of okayness with discussing her, um, what would you say, legacy, it is just so varied. And this Jennifer Cassidy interview that I'm referenced at the top of the show is such a big part of this because what she spoke to me about this week was her PhD in how had the uh, social media platforms have so much to answer for because they've effectively bent the dialogue towards yeah. screaming at each other rather exactly. than agreeing to disagree or finding a common ground where we can move forward from. Um, it's kind of the perfect storm in some ways, isn't it? That here's the death of the most famous woman in the world and differing views on how to treat that. Yeah, and I suppose the basic rule of thumb for social media engagement is you only get responses if you make people angry, really, or mm. you get more responses if you make people angry and outraged. And so if you're looking for a bit of clickbait and you say, you know, God save the Queen and wasn't she marvelous? You get maybe, you know, a couple of hundred likes. But if you say something, you know, it, that seems to a lot of people entirely inappropriate and shocking, you'll get a much bigger response. And I yeah, think it's the Alex is, Jones method. Exactly. Exactly. But I, you know, I think I, I'm just picking up what you said there about friends are too soon to mock. I don't think mocking is, is the same as discussion. Are is the same as being very funny because you can be very funny about anything. And I don't think it's ever too soon. Look, we've all been at wakes and at, you know, things where you will laugh and you'll tell stories and they'll be fun and there'll be mm. you, albeit black and mortem sometimes. But it's part of the, the process of, of, you know, a life ending. Or, and, and so I see nothing wrong with that. But I'm going to make a prediction now, Darlis, which has nothing to do with my, my being here with you. Um, Charles needs to get his act together. King Charles now, um, because as I said, like, you know, two tantrums in three days over a pen on both occasions. I've seen three-year-olds start school, you know, my um, goddaughter <laughs> who was in school, who couldn't find, when she was very small at the age of three starting, couldn't find her favourite pen and she, or crayon, and she got upset, but she was three. You know, I mean, this guy is what seventy four, and he's having a hissy fit twice about his pens not working or the wrong thing being on the wrong desk. Marianne, like, if you make me king, I said this online. I said this on Twitter the other day. If you make me king, I'm never going to be in a bad mood again. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. promise. If you, if you guys decide to make me king, I can yeah. guarantee you no crankiness from that Pretty day near. forward. But and what's Bizarre is that I still got messages going. He's actually suffered a loss. Uh, go easy. He's probably a bit emotional at the moment. But Marion, you're right. It reflects something else, does it not? It's he's in the public scrutiny under that spotlight for the first time in this way. 
and already we're seeing uh, a strappy side to him that you know doesn't and, bode well. Yeah, a snitty, petulant, you know, fussy. Sort of, and, and in fact, another New York magazine had a go at him about that, and, and the New York Post as well. And you know what? I'm sorry, rightly so, because dignity is part of the package. Like you said, if you become King George. Oh God, I wish, I wish. And you wear all the velvet and the jewels and the ermine and the ridiculous uniforms. Yeah, you will have a big grin in your face, I suspect. And especially if you inherit all those hundreds of millions tax-free. So, you know, really, he's been waiting for this job for, what, 70 years. So, it really, he had enough time to, to know, like, he's, he's watched his mother. And whether you're a royalist or not, and I am not, you cannot but admire her dignity and her grace under pressure and her willingness to do a job that to me looks like the most god-awful, tedious job in the world, always with a smile on her face and, you know, with grace. You know, as I say, three days into the job and he can't get it together. He's been rehearsing for, what, at mm. least 50 years. It's like, come on, you know. Look, there, I, is, a, there is a part of this that reflects yeah, some of the pressure isn't is it not that like I don't want to get to give any more time to this past 15 minute mark in our conversation but you would imagine that if your dad won't hand over the family business to you despite the fact that he's 96 years old that by the time it rolls around you're pretty much like give me the fucking pen now <laughs> um I think it is a significant moment but there is quite a bit of other news happening in the world, not least war in Ukraine, Donald Trump's cash scam that we talked about last week, and the conviction of R. Kelly. We're going to try to talk about all of this as much as we can. Let's start with R. Kelly. On Wednesday, 14th of September, federal jury in Chicago finds R. Kelly guilty of a bunch of crimes, including producing videos of child sexual abuse and child enticement. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Marianne, didn't we cover this story already? Isn't R. Kelly already serving 30 years somewhere in New York for, was it racketeering and sex trafficking? Like, what's new here? Okay, what's new? You know, it's you would literally need almost some kind of a chart uh, to keep track of all the R. Kelly cases. So he was convicted in New York. You're absolutely right about that. And this time, I'm going to try and break it down so that it's not as confusing as I initially found it because, yes, he was convicted, sentenced to 30 years, exactly as he said, for the rough racketeering and sex trafficking in New York. This is a federal case in Chicago. Now, in America, you can have two different types of cases. You can have federal crimes and you can have state crimes, and sometimes they overlap. Very good example of that is Steve Bannon was initially indicted federally uh, for stiffing the, the We Build a Wall crowd for, t for sticking a million dollars in his back pocket, allegedly. Donald Trump then pardoned him, and we saw that last week in New York, he faces the same charges at a state level. Now, that is not necessarily double jeopardy, because you know there's a, there's a thing in New York, or I beg your pardon, in the States, that if you're tried for a crime once and you're acquitted or you're pardoned in, in a federal case, you can't be tried again. If you, But you can be tried again at a state level. So there is a division between these two. So uh, R. Kelly was tried at state level in New York. He was convicted. Uh, this is a federal case in Chicago where he was also convicted. Now, he was convicted 
of the same crimes, more or less, as he was acquitted on a state level of back in 2000 and, and 2011, I believe it was, or was it 2008? God, let me, let me get that clear. Okay, so it was, you may remember when the, these charges were initially brought, it was well over a decade ago anyway, um, he was accused of um, sexually abusing his then 14-year-old goddaughter and filming it. Uh, now, at the time, he was acquitted. Because the 14-year-old daughter, who was older than the goddaughter, um, uh, refused to admit that she was the person in the video when the video was produced in court. So the trial basically kind of imploded and, and he got off. And at the time, he had busted. It's amazing. That was before Me Too and now it's after Me Too. At the time, he had, he had, bus load, he had busloads of fans who, and supporters who arrived outside the court who cheered for him, who chanted that he was innocent. And nobody looked askance at any of this. And nobody seemed bothered that the accusations involved a 14-year-old girl who was his goddaughter. And now you fast forward to um, 2022. Uh, the, the, the same um, woman is involved who was a girl then, a, a child then, uh, and she was given um, immunity because uh, she did perjure herself at the time under enormous pressure. And it was said that she had pressured her. He had given her family money. There was proof of money changing hands. Now, he wasn't convicted on that aspect, uh, but he was convicted on, 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 as we said, the council producing and taking part in these sexually abusive videos with a 14-year-old. He's already in prison for 30 years. He he could get another 20 years added on to that now as a result of these charges. There were 13 charges in total. He was convicted of six of the 13, the most serious, um, but he was acquitted on the charge that he had attempted to obstruct an earlier investigation into the abuse um, and on two other counts of enticing minors to have sex because one of the minors at the time didn't turn up to testify. So it was, this. the initial trial, as I said, was in Illinois and it was 2008, and the jury did acquit him at that stage, as I said, because the same um, woman who... Who was then? A, who was the fourteen-year-old girl? Basically, said that she wasn't going to to um. I she wasn't the girl on the tape, and it's understandable. I, she did um lie under oath, but as I said, she's been granted immunity in the interim. Now there are further cases that are up and coming, further criminal cases in Illinois and in Minnesota, and I believe there may also be cases in California. So they are all involving, the other cases involve other victims. Uh, and, and But as I said, this was, was the kind of the grounding charge, if you will, the one that was the most shocking initially. But we know that he's had multiple victims. We know that he has coerced multiple young girls. And as I say, he will serve his 30 years in, in um, New York, but should he be released early or should he, um, for any reason, have that conviction overturned, uh, he, uh, th then if he's convicted on these other ones, as he was in, in Chicago, uh, those sentences don't necessarily run concurrently, they, but they could be consecutive sentences. So I think basically it's fair yes. to say that R. Kelly will be in prison He's about 55 now. I think he will very likely be in prison for the rest of his life. Um, I mean, it just it boggles the mind that this all began with somebody sending a tape to the Chicago Times. Am I correct? In, am I remembering that? You right, are that this wouldn't have come to light or wouldn't have come to light in the time that it did were it not for this anonymous tip off. 
That's right. And also, I, I should have said that two of his employees and one of his managers and, and another um, employee, like senior long-term employees, were also charged with distributing the tape and, and being involved in this. And uh, they said, basically, we didn't know what was on it. We were just following orders. We didn't realize when he'd asked us that they, no, they were they were asked to get the tape back and and you know, whenever the initial tape had been leaked. And so they were being charged as accomplices, but they were acquitted because they said we didn't know what was on the tape. Had we known, we would never have done it. Now, you can take that or, or leave it. But anyway, the jury gave them the benefits of the doubt. What happens, we're going to talk about Patagonia and the very, very specific and unusual situation of a billionaire giving away his company to help fight the climate crisis. R. Kelly is an obscenely wealthy man. Surely some of the redress for these victims isn't just him going to prison. Will there be payouts for these young women who suffered so horribly and basically have their lives robbed from them? Oh yeah, and there are already um, multiple civil actions in the works. I, I think that uh, he, there were hundreds of thousands of dollars paid out to people quietly, I think, to stop them coming forward, to stop them testifying. But those payouts are not, um, I don't want to say they're not legitimate, but, they, but you know, they're, they're like those, those non-disclosure, a bit like Trump and Stormy Daniels. They don't preclude the victims from, from seeking further money and not, you know, he wasn't, I, I don't know how many people he tried to stop um, you know, testifying or bringing charges by making payouts. But certainly, as you say, and it's a good point, and they deservedly, these were children at the time, um, presumably will um, be able to claim money from his estate. He he made a lot of money, He you know, and I, mm. I think that they, they should, a bit like Jeffrey Epstein, they should be able to get, it should be in some way, uh, or at least a considerable portion of it, should be set aside for them to receive compensation from. Can I just Absolutely. ask you a question, though, with your lawyering hat on? If somebody pays somebody some money for them not to talk about a crime that they committed against that person, the person signs something to say, yeah, I'll never, I'll never come after you about that because you gave me this money. Is that a, an illegal agreement? Is that not an attempt to pervert the course of justice in some way? Or is that just an okay thing that people can agree to do things for each other in, well, in exchange for money? It's a really interesting question, Charlotte, because this is how it works. If no charges have yet been brought, if you haven't yet been indicted, you can pay them off. If you have been indicted and you go, listen, I'll give you a few you know, million not to turn up in court, or I'll give you a few million if you turn up in court, but say that this isn't true. That's obstructing justice. That's perverting the course of justice. Yeah. And then you're going to get into a whole lot of trouble. But the American lawyers, like, and there's a lot of ambivalence about um, women like Gloria Allward, like Harvey Weinstein, for example. He paid millions of dollars of compensation quietly to victims before he ever went to court, before it was ever known that he was a serial abuser and rapist. Uh, and, and, but those women, they were not disclosure agreements. Now, court will not uphold. There's a whole woolly legal area about non-disclosure agreements. Is it valid? And this has never been definitively decided, but I would say, as I said, putting on my very dusty legal hat, that I would be amazed if a court would uphold an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, to conceal an illegal act. Now, you may agree it with somebody, 
Um, and, but if they then decide that they're going to either go public with it or that they're going to testify against you, I don't think that a court will say, oh, no, no, you can't testify against this person because they gave you money not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's been alluded to, as I said, in the Weinstein cases and in other cases like that. Um, Doria Allred was somebody who negotiated countless dozens of NDA agreements like where, where a victim of sexual harassment or abuse would get a payment under the table you know, as compensation. And they would say in agreement, okay, that's fine. You've given me five million, I'll go away. And But as I said, if that was an illegal act, if it was something that was illegal, um, then I, I don't think the courts would uphold. It's like any contract. If I enter, if I force you to enter a contract with me under duress or, or give you, you know, a, a huge sort of, I entice you into it with a huge payment, and, but it's to cover up something illegal, I don't think that the courts will uphold that. I'd be amazed. Right. I'm looking well, forward to the case that definitively decides that. Well, there's a lot of news this week about things that yep. you wonder, is that legal? Is that is that a is that a thing? Florida's governor, Ron DeSantos, is taking credit for sending two planes carrying about fifty migrants to the wealthy island of Martha's Vineyard. That's the headline. Right? Can you explain a bit more about this and how these sanctuary destinations for illegal migrants is a state's program? Well, look, it's not. What this is, is it's an election stunt. Ron DeSantis wants to be president in 2024, but in the meantime, more immediately, he's running to be re-elected as governor of Florida in November. Now, it's very unlikely he'd be defeated by his Democratic rival, who was a former Republican governor in Florida, Charlie Crist. But he is doing this wholly as a stunt. And, you know, there there are somewhere between 11 and 13 million illegal um, or undocumented migrants in America. Illegal, you know, people who have entered the states illegally. Uh, Now, he has brought he has, in two small planes, bust a, a total, as he said, of 50 people to Marcos Vineyard, 50 migrants. Uh, this is, you know, this is not going to affect anything. The reason they were both, they were flown to Marcos Vineyard was because he knew it would create headlines. And because, of course, Marcos Vineyard is where the Clintons and the Obamas and the Kennedys and all these liberal Democrats go on their holidays. So it was a real sort of stunt of saying, how do you like it in your backyard? Now, the cynicism of this is that there are 4.5 million undocumented workers in Florida, without which the Florida economy would collapse overnight, without, without which Florida would be bankrupt. Mm. Because they're the people who pluck the oranges that make the orange juice. They're the people that clean up the hotels, all the convention centers on which the whole Florida tour tourism industry is based. So the cynicism, and they're not crossing any border into Florida. You know, there is no Mexican border with Florida. So, the, you know, the border is is uh, California, Arizona, and Texas, basically. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there is, it, it's an act of extreme cynicism, and he's basically mimicking what Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has been doing since April. Now, Greg Abbott is also running to be re-elected as governor of Texas in November. He's running against Beto O'Rourke, who is now five points behind him. I would be amazed if Beto O'Rourke won um, if he managed to oust uh, Greg Abbott. But Abbott has been doing this, sending 
busloads of migrants in a really cruel way uh, from Texas to New York and to Washington, D.C. He sent another busload to, outs- to, to disembark outside Kamala Harris's um, Washington residence this week. Uh, and again, it's all... But what he does is these... The, these migrants have come over the border illegally. Okay, many of them have been walking in the desert for weeks and weeks, and they're they're given no food and no water for a, a trip that takes two to three days on a bus to get from Texas to Washington or New York or, or whatever other sanctuary state, as he calls it, he's sending them to. And it's basically it's small numbers, it's thousands, it's nothing. You know, he's claiming that millions are coming over the border, so it's not that it's going to resolve the problem. It's that his voters down in Texas are going to go, you go, Greg, or in Florida, they're going to go, you go, Ron, you show them, you stick it through them. And that's really the whole point of it. Is it, do, is it achieving its goal as a stunt? Uh, yeah, I think it is, because as I said, the, 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 MAGAs, the MAGA bros of Florida and Texas love it. They love yeah, it. Yeah, so it, it's like yeah. dumping the... Uh, the uh, problem into over the wall of your neighbor yes. um literally just yeah. you know now it's now it's on your land yeah but as i say it's it's a couple of thousand you know um undocumented out of a huge yeah huge of, so it's not solving the problem it's not doing anything realistically to help the situation because the frustrating is that these are the very people who when you say well look we have 11 million undocumented workers currently working in America, without whom the economies of California, Florida, Texas, probably New York, would all collapse. So they're the very people who say, we're not giving amnesty to these people. So they won't work to resolve the issue. Now, you may not think that a pathway to citizenship is the right way, but what's the alternative? What, you know, do you mm. send 11 million workers back and tank the US economy in the process? How do you even go about doing that? How do you how do you afford the cost of that in logistics in and the humanitarian cost and the moral cost? You know, so it's it's just not so as I say, you almost want to say, like, you know what, like cutter, what is it they say, fish or cut bait? Like either work to solve this problem and you, you compromise where you may not want to hand out amnesty or a path to citizenship, but you can't have it both ways. You you and, and I think mm-hmm. that this they're really cynical. And this is where what they're doing is is despicable, really. We have an awful lot more to get to in part two of my conversation with Mary McKeown. Every single week, there's a double size episode where we get deeper into the news stories emerging from the US. This week, we will talk about Patagonia founder leaving his company to the planet. We'll talk about Joe Biden's attempt to avert a national rail strike. Lindsey Graham's proposal for a nationwide 15-week ban on abortion come over to patreon.com forward slash irishman abroad ready you have the cameras rolling this is america a lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the donald trump four years you encouraged espionage against our people you condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.